Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to... Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Racket and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we have another preseason edition of The Deciding Point, where we break down our top 10 Division I men's and women's college tennis teams heading into the 2024 season. Of course, as you can see, we have officially past the halfway mark in our top 10 previews. What does that mean? Well, it means we're about two weeks away from the start of the college tennis season. And I know I speak for everyone on this podcast, everyone at Cracked Rackets. And I imagine everyone tuning in at home right now when I say we are all amped. We are all eagerly anticipating the start of the 2024 season. But of course, before we can get to any tennis action out on court, we got to do our job. We got to make sure all of you fans are prepared for the start of the season. Of course, the purpose of this exercise is to let all of you tennis fans know who we here at Crack Rackets, as I like to call our Crack Rackets intelligentsia, thinks the top teams will be throughout the course of the 2024 season, the teams that will define the ultimate outcomes we see play out throughout the course of the year. Of course, it is worth noting at the start of this podcast, as we have passed the halfway mark, that if you've missed any of our preview content thus far, all you got to do to catch up is scroll down on your Great Shot podcast feed. You can find the teams ranked 6 through 10 in both our Division I men's and women's rankings on this Great Shot podcast feed. You can find podcasts where we talk about our deliberation process as well. Again, it's our job to get all of you college tennis fans ready for the 2024 season. We take that role seriously, and thus, on today's podcast, we get to the number five team in our preseason Division I women's college tennis poll, number five, Oklahoma State. And joining me to break down the Cowgirls heading into 2024 is the man who joins me on each and every one of these Division I preview podcasts, a man, of course, you all know best as the returning champion of returning champions here on our Crack Racket shows, a man who was so good at podcasting, he decided to roll solo. And now you can hear him on the No Ad, No Problem podcast just about every week. Of course, we know him as co-host of The Deciding Point and our dear friend back from Mexico, back from illness. It's John J. Parsons. Jay, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. Happy belated Christmas to you. Happy holiday season. Most importantly, how are you feeling tonight, my friend? I'm good. We are in the true home stretch so i am ready to get these final five done this one in particular oklahoma state it's uh a big mover, I will say, <laughs> from what we have had in the past, much more so than some of the other schools we've walked through that might not have deviated much from their 2023 final ranking. So we're we're in the home stretch. I'm excited. 
Absolutely. And again, on today's show, we're going to get into all things Oklahoma State. We're going to recap their 2023. We're going to preview their 2024 by talking about the returners, the new additions to their roster. How did they look this summer, this fall, not just in college matches, but in particular as it relates to this Oklahoma State team? How did they do on the pro circuit as well? Some notable results for us to discuss today. Of course, we'll speculate about the lineup. We'll speculate about the schedule as well. Talk ceiling and floor. Get into all things cowgirl tennis. Of course, they are also our hosts for the 2024 NCAA team and individual events. We can talk about that in a little bit as well. But before we do, it is the holiday season. And much as I did with Chris Halioris in our preseason number six podcast, I believe for the men, I want to start with an opening tangent with you as well, John J. Parsons. You and I make it a point to offer as many takes as possible throughout the course of a 2023 or any, I should say, college tennis season. I mean, that's what our job is to do behind the mic here, to keep you all entertained, to keep you all hypothesizing about what might unfold as the year progresses. And look, we can't all be Ted Williams. We can't all be Babe Ruth. We're going to hit some swings. We're going to we're gonna connect. We're going to, you know, whiff on a few as well. And in that spirit, the holiday spirit, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Chris Halioris, Jay, reflecting upon your 2023 takes, what I'd love to ask you, give me the take you think you were most right about. Give me the takes you think you might want back from the 2023 season. Well, first of all, only one of us really goes out on the limb and makes predictions here on and that's this you. show. <laughs> Let's be clear. Yes. That's you. That's you. That's you. <laughs> the other one hides behind broadcasting responsibilities. So, <laughs> it's really just me that has to reflect back on these sorts of predictions. And I don't have a right for you here. <laughs> I, you know me, I do my homework. So I dutifully went back and listened to both episodes that were on this, sh- this show and also on my own show on all sorts of different predictions. <laughs> and 2023 was a big year of whiffs. So the opposite <laughs> of the Babe Ruths, if you extend that baseball mm-hmm. analogy, that was me in 2023. So I can give you two wrongs that I would most want back. Number one, is, and both of these are teams that I thought were going to perform much better than they did in 2023, and they did not. And the first is USC. I was really high on the Trojans in 2023, bringing in freshman Maddie Sieg. I distinctly remember a conversation we had in filling out our top 10, and I felt pretty passionate about including USC in the top 10. They did not live up to top 10 expectations. They had a brief run towards the end of 2023, making the Pac-12 final. But outside of that, definitely didn't live up to the expectations of having a top one of the top freshmen in the country in Maddie Sieg, a returning number one player in the country, Aaron Cayetano, Snow Hahn anchoring that middle of the lineup. So that was definitely a whiff for me. Yes, I'm not gonna. You know, I'm not gonna pivot for you there. That was a little bit of a whiff. I will say, you probably bought though a little extra goodwill with how right you were about Oklahoma in 2022. Like no one got that take more correct than you. So I'm gonna buck you up here to start. But yeah, I think we should probably take an L. 
on USC. Uh, well, speaking of Oklahoma, that <laughs> does segue to my next L that I okay. took, which was when I was trying to look for the next Oklahoma last season. You and I disagreed on whether this team could be in that category because I said Vanderbilt was going to be the next Oklahoma in it, having a team that would go from finishing 20 to 30 to really elevating themselves in hindsight. That team was of course, Iowa state that we have talked glowingly about. That it. was a right. We're going to, that's a W for the year. Yeah, but we, I don't think we never went out and said they'd finish top 10. No, right? lowercase w, not capital. Yeah. <laughs> lowercase w. That would have been the right answer in finding the next Oklahoma. I went with Vanderbilt. Now, initially, we were thinking that looked really good when they knocked off <laughs> NC State kickoff weekend, <laughs> and it was immediately downhill after that. Now, I will caveat that with, one of the reasons I was high on that team was they brought in two blue chip recruits in Bridget Samuel and Sonia McAvey. Sonia McAvey out with the serious, I believe, knee injury for the entirety of the season, pretty much. So that did hurt them. But <laughs> that was a tough one to watch just like spiral downward through the duration of the season. So those are my two big wrongs in 2023. I'm going to give you the W for Iowa State. Yeah, you. I mean, that was well assessed by you. I think that one of the reasons I wanted to do this exercise is I was thinking, what's it take? I'm pushing all the chips in in for 2024. And I'm pretty sure it's just all things Auburn for me. Like no one has bought more Auburn Tiger stock than I have over the past, honestly, 24 months. Like they are on the journey that Iowa State was once on, only I'm being even that much more upfront and thinking, no, 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 I think this is a top 10 team. I think this is a top eight team. I think they're the ones I'm putting all of my take equity into, into 2024. And I apologize to the Lady Tigers for burdening them with such a burden. Um, is there a team like that for you that you think one year from today, we're going to be talking about, boy, I was wrong about them in 24? Well, I was going to say, you're definitely holding Wisconsin warm. You know, you're, <laughs> you're not letting that one go. Never. Uh, I, I'm not ready yet to make that prediction yet. I need, a, <laughs> <laughs> I need a little bit more time to season this. Uh, I only have like two weeks left, but <laughs> I need to think about this. Okay. You know, I take this seriously. And I whiffed pretty hard on the Vanderbilt one. Yeah. So I want to make sure I do this right. I know you're all in on Auburn, which I'm, I mean, okay. They go from what they finished last season. 12-ish. Like 12. -ish. 12. <laughs> oh, well, they go 12 to 9, you know. <laughs> wow. Uh, I, no, I, I'm looking for the I'm looking for the gems, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm looking for the, the Charlottes, Ooh. right, that are really going to jump mm -hmm. up. So I got to look more at that roster. But, you know, get back to me on this. I like to hear that. I think on the men's side, because I didn't mention this with Chris, I'm all in on Auburn on the women's side. Um, between Oklahoma on the men's side, I really like that roster. Martinez, Mandelik, Khan, Monsi. Yeah, like they've got the goods. It's probably a year too soon for LSU on the women's side, but like that's an interesting one I have circled. The other interesting one, and this is just something I talked about with Chris yesterday in the Stanford pod, so apologies that you're going to get this name on two consecutive days, but 
I always love to hear Jay's thoughts on these sorts of things. And just a little look behind the curtain. Jay and I recorded our podcast for number seven and number six like a month ago. So I haven't talked (laughs) to him in quite some time. Uh, So I miss his smiling face. We got some things to catch up. I almost called you dude. I was like, I can't call Jay dude. I'm like, I, I dude, I, bro, it, man. We're dude, just... <laughs> I respect you, dude. I respect you way too much to call you dude. Um, Jay, do you see Nanda's on the UCLA roster? And like, Govan Nanda is eligible. I'm very certain he will be eligible because I'm 90% certain he was continued to be registered for classes even while he was out on the pro tour so as to not completely sacrifice his eligibility. I'm not saying I'm buying UCLA stock entirely, but I ain't selling it either. Like, if you can get it at the right price, I'm looking around the markets, and there are some people who are selling low, myself included, back in the day, and I'm buying Janu- I'm buying May Alex's May UCLA stock. That's right. I'm referring to myself in third person. I'm buying my May UCLA stock and holding it because if it's Nanda – and Huga Martins, and Ravelli, and like, and now it's just a team. It's like, it's a real team that is going to win some serious matches. And so I'm not pushing in all of my take chips on them, but a little bit of a resurgence. Like, I guess the take would be, does UCLA finish above USC in the rankings? If you wanted to be spicy and throw in a take, you'd say yes on the men's side. I mean, <laughs> the... Price of UCLA back in May was zero. So <laughs> you'd stock. absolutely, yeah, it was a penny <laughs> stock. So you absolutely would have, would have bought it then. And I agree. I mean, I think you're right on the Nandan stuff. That would have been the key. If he was still enrolled and taking classes, then it's very possible uh, that he is still eligible. I think that's going to be the issue with Boyton. There's no way Boyton was taking classes mm-hmm. during the last year and a half. But if Nandan was taking online classes, I don't think this person will listen to this podcast, but I know uh, of very talented players who are were potentially taking online classes that might have considered returning, uh, and that was the key, the, whether they were still enrolled. So um, I, I agree with that. I think that, and I've also been really impressed by UCLA's recruiting. Like, despite the fact that they've not been good these past few years, they're still bringing in really talented recruits and in a lot of ways they're bringing in a lot of these more local recruits that you would expect usc would bring in that they're not so things still seem to be humming there i know things we'll see how things transition with the move to the big 10 but yeah on the men's side i think that's a good call yeah, those would be the ones that if you want to have a spicy take, again, I would say those are the teams to look to here early. And again, maybe it will be this exact segment that I come to regret when I ask you this question in our 2025 offseason preview. But it's the holiday season. It's a time for reflection. It's a time for a little fun. And more than anything, again, I haven't podcasted with Jay in six years. So it's good for us to get a little 15-minute warm-up here. Dog years over here. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, I missed you so much it felt like six years. And that is truth. That wasn't buttering you up, my friend. It is always a pleasure to have you on the program. And again, who doesn't like a little opening tangent here in the holiday season? I will say a team we feel pretty confident about. It doesn't feel like a hot take. And I think if you pulled a lot of coaches, everyone would agree this Oklahoma State team belongs inside the top 10, belongs inside the top eight as well. And thus, again, I'm very excited 
to talk about the Cowgirls entering the 2024 season, who, of course, will be the subject of today's pod. And again, as usual, we're going to recap 2023, preview 2024, but something I've been trying to do more of of late as well is provide better context for our listeners and talk in the larger scheme of program success where all of these teams are as we enter this 2024 season. And look, I say this not in a disrespectful way, but I think it's also pretty accurate to say no one would consider Oklahoma State a blue blood in the college tennis universe. Yes, they were the 2016 NCAA team finalists, and yes, they have had all Americans. They have had successful players just about throughout the entirety of Chris Young's tenure as the head coach at Oklahoma State, but look, it's a massive year for the Cowgirls. No ifs, ands, or buts about it, and the central... Uh, through or the central storyline, perhaps the headline surrounding this Oklahoma State team is the fact that they are hosting the final eight. They are hosting quarterfinals through finals plus NCAA individuals this year come May. And ask any coach in the country. I talked to Michael Woodson yesterday on the Cracked Interviews podcast. You can go hear him talk about how important it is for him to have his team peaking at the right moment to become a Final Eight contender, to be one of those teams that gets to play those final rounds of the NCAA tournament at home. And there is no doubt this is what that is what Chris Young is hoping to accomplish with the Oklahoma State Cowgirls this year. And look again, it's been a little bit for Oklahoma State since they've been competing at the tippy top of the college tennis universe. And it's been tough for the Cowgirls. You think about the 2020 specifically, what do you associate that with? The rise of Texas, back-to-back NCAA championships. They weren't too shabby last year, making the quarterfinals as well. The rise of Oklahoma, who makes a national indoor final, who makes an NCAA final, who has been pretty unequivocally a top 10, top 12 team now for 24 consecutive months. Like, things get crowded, got crowded, excuse me, at the top of the Big 12. And it's not to say that Oklahoma State has dropped off significantly over the course of the past half decade. It just speaks to, for them, like everyone else, the competition has only proven stiffer as time has progressed for the Cowgirls. But again, it, it's been a really good tenure uh, for Chris Young, who just about every season has his team at the very least competing for NCAA round of 16, NCAA quarterfinal status. This is a team that has won multiple Big 12 championships under Chris Young's tenure. By the way, Chris Young has been there for 14 years now. That's like, that's sh- I don't know, in my head, Chris Young is in his 30s still. And you're <laughs> welcome for that compliment right away, coach. That's not, by the way, uh, hyperbole. Like, I don't know why. He's a young soul. Am I wrong? I feel like I'm right here, Jay. Chris Young, a, a young soul, pun intended. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, again, after spending five years of director of tennis at Wichita State, Chris Young now, you know, he's been here, I think it's what, during his time, he's led the team to 11 straight trips to the NCAA tournament, five trips to the NCAA Sweet 16 in the last eight years, two Big 12 regular season titles, and of course, that national runner-up finish back in 2016. With that context in mind, I ask you, John J. Parsons, as you reflect upon Oklahoma State's 2023 season, a season that saw them go 16-8. and eight, Overall on the year, a season that saw them go 7-2 and two in conference play, ultimately knocked out second round of the NCAA tournament as they just missed out on a top 16 seed, were forced to head to Stanford where they were knocked out 4-1 by the eventual NCAA semifinalists. Again, 
that's a really tough draw for Oklahoma State to face. Also worth noting, they got knocked out in the kickoff weekend. They hosted Michigan, but Michigan came down to Stillwater, was able to knock them out 4-2. And, you know, certainly when you don't make the national indoors in terms of pursuit of top 16, top eight seeds, it's always going to be an uphill climb after that. That said, this was a frisky team all season long. I mean, again, they earned some really impressive victories, perhaps most notably their 4-3 win in Austin at Texas at the start of March. A lot of returning pieces from last year's team as well, which is how you could perhaps make the argument that 2023 was the table setter for what ultimately is the final course in this hosting 2024 year. All of that context in mind, Jay, Overperformance, underperformance, just right for this Oklahoma State team in 2023. And where are you with this Cowgirls program more broadly? Well, I'll answer the second part first. I think this is truly a case study in it's difficult to rise to the top, particularly not being a traditional mm-hmm. blue blood program. It's maybe even tougher to stay there. And, you know, I look back and I remember that 2016 run quite fondly. It was in Tulsa, it was in Oklahoma. And at the time and still today, it would have been Oklahoma State's first NCAA women's title in any sport. So it feels full circle moment to host 2024 at Oklahoma State, have them try and do that again. And since then, they've had some up years, had some down years, right? But last year felt like they had some things go against them, right? I think they got a really tough draw with having Michigan come to them at kickoff, a Michigan team that was clearly going to be a lot better. So that was tough. And then they also got totally hosed in the NCAA draw, having to go to Stanford being one of the first teams out and going to, at the time, the number seven seed, but clearly a top four team in the country. And look, they pushed Stanford. I was at that match. They pushed Stanford really well. It was 4-1, but there were a lot of really close matches there. So I think if I was to say overperformance, underperformance, to me, it felt just right. It felt like things were starting to click in the right direction for this team really after that a win in Austin. Now, look, they were in a Big 12 that had really four teams that were honestly all quarterfinal teams. I truly believe at the end of that season, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Iowa State, and Texas were all very similar. And you look at Texas, they pushed North Carolina in the quarterfinal. You could Iowa State, they pushed NC State. I think very easily that could have been Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, and they would have had similar results. So, I think they were making good progress in the right direction, had some things go against them at certain points in the season. But generally, I think it was I think it was just right plus like it was just right. And I felt good about how it ended. It actually was a roller coaster in the perfect sense, in the sense that, look, the buildup was a little bit rocky at the start. And again, those back to back losses to Michigan, the home and, you know, the home and home and they lose them both. They put themselves behind the eight ball early on, and they were playing catch up the rest of the way. And to your point, it is a credit to this Oklahoma State team that they almost worked their, themselves all the way back, that they did go 7-2 and two in, in maybe the best year the Big 12 Conference has had in quite some time. I know there have been some years when Baylor was pretty good and yeah. Well, also yeah. 2022, it was a Texas-Oklahoma final. Thank you, 2023. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, exactly. And so, like, again— 
It's tough to say. Now, there were some experienced pieces, right, on last year's team. Like, you know, again, they did have a bunch of senior, you know, Zerolo, Wolfberg, Novak, Miyamoto. They were all fourth years or further last season. So they did have an experienced group coming back last year. But, like, again, I guess, you know, we always like to play uh, good win, bad loss, right, or throughout the course of the year. And, like, I don't know if this team took any bad losses in their 16 and 8 resumes. You kind of look through it again. The the losses to Michigan, Michigan was a quarterfinal team. Neither of those are bad losses. Maybe bad in the context of it was at home, but again, we've beaten that drum long enough. 4-3 loss at Columbus. Ask NC State what it's like to play at Columbus. Ask any school, men's or women's, what it's like to play in Columbus on those courts. Life gets tricky. Four and one Ohio loss. State was playing like the best tennis in the country it, in January. Exactly. They, it couldn't have said it better myself. 4-1 loss at Pepperdine, not a bad loss. 4-2 loss at home to Iowa State, I don't think that's a bad loss. 4-0 in Norman, a little lopsided. You would have liked yeah. it a little closer, but not a bad loss. 4-3 Texas, 4-1 Stanford. I don't, I don't see the bad loss, Jay. Like That's yeah. what I'm saying is maybe that's what the uh, testament to this team performed as advertised because other than the Texas win, I don't know if they ever exceeded expectations. But again, what I keep coming back to as I reflect on 2023, and I feel like Chris Young would be the first person to say this. I imagine this is the expectation for Cowgirl fans across the nation. Last year was the table setting year. Like, to me, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That like last year was okay. Let's get let, let's tr- get all the experience in because again, we're hosting NCAAs in 2024. Like this is the make or break season, not make or break, but this is the significant season for the Cowgirls. You're making a face at me. Explain. Why. Yeah, I, I don't agree. This is definitely the season. This is all chips in 2024. But we'll get to the players that they brought in. But when you bring in the transfer class that they brought in, I don't see it as 2023 was the set the table because they just reset the deck with like a a whole new slate of players that they're going to rely on. So I think, and some of their younger players are no longer there. So that's true. You know, you look at the players from last season how many of them are expected to start? Miyamoto, uh, Lucia uh, Pere, and maybe Novak. So, like, maybe half of them. So, I, I, I don't know. We're resetting the deck in a lot of ways. You're not wrong, but as we look at the roster, we look at the new additions, and we'll spend some time about the new additions in a second. Had Sofia Rojas come back, then is it an argument of like maybe it was a table setting year like that like again if you return four starters and I guess again you didn't know Rojas wasn't coming back for sure at the time right and it's just and I guess technically you know she's not on the roster technically she still could come back like there is that hypothetical but I think we both think she won't I'm just saying that that's the point of my well, argument. she's in the portal yeah well okay I guess we know <laughs> she won't um, like, spoiler alert um yeah well, I, I know it's con- she's in the portal as you said at the beginning, Jay, there's only one person on this podcast who gives takes, and that's you. So thank you for setting me straight here. Here's what I'm saying. With that piece of context in mind, if Rojas had come back, would you have called it a table settling season? I would have been more agreeable to that because I would have <laughs> said I would have said now I felt like Rojas Gonzalez have have gone through a few iterations of what this looks like. And I will I was surprised that Rojas is not coming back. I actually thought that was gonna be a good linchpin 
for this team moving into 2024. She was very solid for them at the five spot. She looked strong, I thought, when I saw her in person. So that did change things for me a little bit. But yeah, I think then you would say, okay, maybe we have three and a half, maybe maybe four who were on last year's team. But regardless, it just feels like if you're going to bring in the transfers that they've brought in, like it's a reset the deck. Yeah, fair enough. And again, certainly we look forward to uh, seeing how those new pieces fit in right away. But let's talk about the returners from last season first. And, you know, again, the records we saw from them last year, I think, you know, you mentioned some of the returners and the big ones, Raquel Gonzalez, Ayumi Miyamoto, Christina Novak, Lucia Pire, uh, the four perhaps that stand out the most of the group, the four who got the most matches of the returners in the group. Miyamoto is the one who stands out first and foremost, right? You look at her last season, 17-3 and three overall in dual match play. Obviously, Miyamoto able to have a massive uh, summer fall as well, not just at the ITA level where, of course, Miyamoto now finds herself currently ranked, I believe, number 60 in the country to start the year, but more broadly at the pro circuit level, right, where we saw her have some serious success at the futures level. Talk to me about this returning group. Who excites you the most amongst them? Well, I just before we get into that, one thing I want to call out about the 2023 season is I feel like they never really got their lineup sorted out. When I look back at these stats from 2023, they are some of the strangest stats <laughs> I think I've ever seen at, at, at with these top teams. I mean, you look at the winning percentages by line, they were 36% at 1, 5, 50% at 2, 63% at 3. 74% at four, 74% at five, and 77% at six. You almost never see that. And so this team was so back half heavy. Miyamoto, who you talked about, was so fantastic at both the four and the five spot, but they completely lacked sort of a one or a two to help fill those gaps. So she was fantastic and she continued that level of play throughout the summer and the fall, as you mentioned, winning the the 15K there. And, you know, in the one, she only played one college event. I was surprised to hear she was ranked at 60, but in that one event, she knocks off uh, Vidmanova of Georgia. So she's absolutely one to watch. I'm curious to see how high we might see her in this lineup because she's a, a dual threat for them, both singles and doubles. She's a great player. I mean, it's the reverse 2019 Wake Forest, where they were Goyo, Petros, Botzer, find one more. This year's Oklahoma State team was four, five, six, find one more. And it actually is fascinating because, to your point, Miyamoto 17 and three. That's a drop the jaw, holy crap. You were freaking exceptional. <laughs> I was going to make a joke. <laughs> Should I make the joke, Jay, or no? You just tell me yes or no. Make the joke. Send all the NIL money her way. She's earned it. That's the joke for Miyamoto. Um, and by the way, that's a compliment to what this Oklahoma State team is doing and rocking and rolling. Rojas was 14-6. and six. That's really good as well. Everyone else, it's like 10-9, and 11-6, and 8-4. I'm good at this position, but if you move me up one, no, 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 no. And like, it is fascinating. You're absolutely right at the same time. It's a team that played nine different doubles combinations. They were 12 and 8 at 1, 11 and 10 at 2, 13 and 9 at 3. They could find three points pretty easily. Finding that fourth point was always the question of where is it going to come from? And, you know, again, 
I think of all the starters, Miyamoto's the one who you think probably pretty certainly top four in this singles lineup, I want to say right away. Like last year, again, she was 8-1 and one at 4, 9-2 and two at 5, and given the pro success as well, it's hard to deny that she's probably earned that spot inside the top four. After that, like, you are right. As for the other returners, look, you would be shocked if a Christina Novak goes from playing in the top spot to not playing in the lineup everywhere. You imagine there's a spot for her, but by the way, she might be at four, at three, at five. Like, this team does have that sort of luxury now. And, you know, again, for um, any I mean, any of these players you want to look at, it, it is fascinating to wonder, hmm, where are these returners going to fit in? Because, obviously, we're going to talk about the talented transfers coming in in Komar, in Obi Kajuru in a moment. But power rank the returners for me, Jay, of the, of the contributors. I guess... Let me rephrase that. Of the players returning from last year's team, how many do you feel certain we'll see in the singles lineup this year? Two. Just Lucia and oh, – sorry, just Christina and Ayumi? No. I think just Ayumi Miyamoto, who we just spoke mm-hmm. about, who is in her fifth year now, yeah. and then Lucia Perry, who also had you – know, she was 8-2 and two at 3 last year, and she had a good fall as well. She dominated the 15K in Norman – she didn't drop a set in taking that title. She made the final of that 15K where she was beaten by Miyamoto in the final there. She beat Brodus in her one college event. I am. She and Miyamoto are locks for this singles lineup. I would actually say they're both locks for top four. And you don't say the same about Christina Novak, who played number one for this team last year. I don't know if she was their best player last year. Oh, Jay, it's when you provide spice like this that I just love to have you on the show. Continue. (laughs) I mean, you know, she was six and nine at one. It was at times not great. I thought she did look very, she gave Yepafanova her only loss at number one last season. She ended on a high note, but I was looking for more this fall from her. She had a solid fall. So I do think there's a place for her in this lineup. Absolutely. She was eight and four. I wouldn't say she looked like a, a number one player, right? She's not going to play number one for this 2024 squad. Most of her losses this fall were to top players like a Sarah Hamner of South Carolina. So I think she factors in at five and six, though, rather than where she was last season at one. But the two I am like, take it to the bank is Miyamoto and Pere. I agree on Miyamoto's a take to the bank. Man, Novak and Perry. I mean, again, why are we questioning Novak or Perry's spot in the lineup? It's because they brought in some serious horses from the transfer portal. And that's where I want to start with the new additions as well. And look, I think these two new additions speak for themselves. We barely have to go through the resume of redshirt sophomore Anastasia Komar Jr., Obi Kajuru. Now, in case you are less familiar with those two, let's start with Komar, who has a redshirt freshman last season, 19-2. and two. Let me say that again. 19-2 and two, playing at the top two spots for LSU. She was a singles and doubles All-American, ranked as high as number nine in the ITA singles rankings. Of course, if that wasn't enough, Komar's 12-4 and four fall has her at 13 in the ITA rankings to start this season. And, you know, again, you bring a talent like that, you're feeling pretty good regardless of what else you add to your roster over the course of the offseason, but you can make a legitimate argument that Komar is the second best player they brought onto the roster this year as perhaps no one 
made a bigger impact. No one was more clearly the breakout star of 2023 in college tennis than Obi Kajuru, who was maybe, I don't want to say the only reason, but probably the biggest reason that Oklahoma, uh, excuse me, Iowa State made the jump that they did last season. And look, Obi was all Big 12. She was 25 and 6 in singles, 29 and 10 in doubles, 52 nationally in singles at the end of the season. But I both think we thought she was a top 50 player pretty clearly. And guess what? After a 15 and 3 fall, she's not just top 10. She's not just top 5. She is number 2 in the ITA rankings after the fall, Jay. And look, I'm not trying to disrespect Sophia Carrington, who I got to spend a little time with at the Oklahoma Tennis Foundation event, and I got to spend time with all of these players, and there certainly was a chemistry clearly developing between the Cowgirls this season. But, I mean, Jay, there's winning the transfer portal, and then there's winning the transfer portal. This feels like a Stokowiak Furman broom type class that Chris Young has brought in. And we know when Baylor brought in those three, you know, what they were able to accomplish that season on top of everything else. I mean, the two best transfers in the transfer portal both ended up at Oklahoma State. Well, uh, those guys at Baylor are chumps compared to these yeah. <laughs> this class because they played at the bottom of the lineup. I tell you what, Komar and Kajuru aren't playing anywhere close to where Stokowiak, Broom, and Furman were playing. These players are playing top of the lineup. And for Kajuru, I, I loved what you said on one of our other shows. You uh, alluded to it here of just having like a, the breakout 2023 year. We saw it indoors where it was like, whoa. We hadn't paid a lot of attention to her in her previous seasons at Iowa State, but she really made an impact for Iowa State. And to now be the highest ranked player in Oklahoma State women's tennis history, (laughs) I mean, to add on to what she had already done in 2023 for Iowa State absolutely seals the argument that, you know, she has had the breakout season it's been really fascinating to watch. And certainly, I mean, she beat Komar in the Central Regional Final. So to bring in these players, and again, Carrington coming in as a fifth year, also from LSU, brings in a lot of experience. This is a player who has played number one at LSU in the past. Let's not forget that. So she will absolutely factor in somewhere into this lineup. But yeah, I mean, the Komar, Komar Kajuru one-two punch as it was unfolding at uh NCAAs in Orlando certainly had the grounds a buzz for sure. A hundred percent. And again, like that Sophia Carrington, who's not an afterthought. She is a two-time All-SEC second team player, someone who, to your point again, has played as high as number one in an SEC lineup before. That she's like clearly the third best transfer you bring in just speaks to, again, how exceptional this class is uh, for Chris Young to have brought in. Perhaps most encouraging, like three more years with Komar, two years here with Obi. There's a runway for Oklahoma State. And yeah, just to put the final bow on that Obi comment you made, unranked to start the year two uh, to end it. Like we would have called her Ange at the start of last season. Now we know it's <laughs> Obi. Like, come on now. Like, what a breakout. And to add that group in. We've talked about this before. I talk about this with coaches at the time. It's one thing to bring in superstar freshmen, but like to Reese Brantmeyer's point, or like to the Reese Brantmeyer example of it, like that's the best case scenario of hoping like a freshman clicks right away and has success in a top of a lineup. 
You don't have those burdens when your newcomers are a junior and a redshirt sophomore who just put together a 19-2 and campaign. You can feel pretty good if you're a cowgirl fan that they would have contributed, that, that they're going to contribute right away, Jay. And so, I mean, again, it is, do you go Obi or or, uh, or Komar 1? Which way are you leaning here at the start? <laughs> Sorry, the Ant comment was really funny. I'm still laughing about it. You deserve, <laughs> you deserve the credit for that. I think I was calling her Angie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was really funny. Uh, you know, what's interesting about Komar and Kajuru is they have completely different game styles. Yeah. So, you know, Komar, very tall, big serve, first strike tennis. Kajuru, just an absolute wall from, from the back of the court. You look at that and you go, well, Komar is clearly the number one game style-wise. Kajuru clearly fits into a number two. I would lean that way, but there's a part of me that feels like there's some element of you need to try and get the best out of Komar in certain situations. And I feel like putting her at two would build a little fire under her uh, to say, hey, Kajuru earned this from her fall season. She beat you head to head. I think there was a bagel in there too. Like, <laughs> you know, she gets to go one. But game style wise, indoors, you probably go Komar one, Kajuru two. But I think it's going to be interesting. I definitely think they're going to split time uh, across the board. But I think by the end of the season, I think Komar one, Kajuru two. It's... Komar has the most effortless game of maybe anyone in college from an eye test standpoint. We're just like, are you sure she's trying? And then she'll, you know, again, because she's got the big frame. She's tall. She's like six foot, you know, yeah, maybe absolutely. even a little bit over that. And just like, you're absolutely right. You don't think she's going to get to that corner, but she moves pretty well for someone that size. And, you know, again, then she'll blast the forehand by you or she'll flatten out the backhand and. You know, again, I've seen her grind a little bit as well. I've seen her play that heavy topspin. It's just a matter of, again, what coma are you getting on any given day? And by the way, that may sound like a criticism. Let's be clear. Even when you're not sure from the effort level what you're getting is someone who went 19-2. and two. So what you're yeah. getting is a winner. Match in, match out. She's our new Alana Smith. Oh, that's a great comp, Jay. That's an excellent comp for her game style, for her success as well. There's also like a quietness about her where you're just kind of, yeah, that subtlety and then she just blows by you. But you said it so perfectly. It's a game style that screams number one. It's a game style, like, you know, again, in a way, by the way, worth noting, and this is a significant thing. I talked to my coach, Ed Nagel, many a times. He was on a Michigan team where it was him, NCAA singles finalist Dan Goldberg, and a talented freshman, future Wimbledon finalist, by the way, of Malvay Washington. And the reason I bring up this example is because 1987, Ed Nagel played number one singles, Dan Goldberg played number two, Goldberg made the NCAA final that year. Ed will go to his dying day saying the reason Dan made it to the final that year is because he got to play number two, because he didn't have to run through the ringer, match in, match out. And when he had to do that the next season, he wasn't able to duplicate that NCAA success. The reason I bring that up is twofold. One, Komar's been through the grind of being a number one from start uh, from start of season to end of season. And knowing that burden, or at least playing the 11 number one singles matches that she did last season, something you couldn't say for Obi, who got to lean on Naklo a little bit more at the top of the lineup last season. Part two of that equation is they can legitimately run the platoon system and be like, you know what, indoors we like this matchup, outdoors we like this matchup. Now again, that gets a little tricky once there are challenges involved and all those sorts of things, but... 
I, like a 50-50 split doesn't seem unreasonable between the two, Jay. No, I think we will see a lot of splits. You look back at the 2023 season, most of these players on the Oklahoma State roster played two, if not three different positions throughout the course of the year. These two will go back and forth at one and two. And, you know, I would not be surprised to see a Miyamoto get a shot or there's going to be a lot of permutations of this. But these are, I think, the t- I don't, Miyamoto is a tough out, but yeah, these are these are two incredible players to have, and just good options because of that difference in matchup style, right? There is going to be flexibility to move them around, and there's really no way to challenge anything anything about it. Yeah, the question is, I guess Miyamoto is your breakout player, right, for this roster of the summer of the fall, and you know, again, you look at the current rankings. I mentioned it. Obi's two. Comar's 12. Uh, you look for other Oklahoma State team, uh, Oklahoma State players in the in the rankings. Excuse me. You have Lucia, uh, Lucia Peire. I'm butchering that pronunciation. I apologize. Number 53. Miyamoto's number 60. Carrington's number 62. They have five ranked players, Jay. It's a pretty solid spot to be well, five. And the by top. the way, those last three only played one tournament. Yeah. Carrington, uh, Peire, and Miyamoto only played one tournament. Don't hate the play. I hate the game. Like, again, it's a credit to them. They've got five ranked singles. Oh, yeah. It's a credit to the quality of wins that they got in that one tournament. A hundred percent. And again, they've got, what, two ranked doubles teams as well. Komar and Obi are number six. Komar and Gonzalez are number 12. I still think, again, through all that, just the, the future success for Miyamoto was that extra exclamation point that has you thinking, all right, like unequivocally, this is a top eight team and they're one of the top eight teams you would be more, you know, again, that Miyamoto run is probably what makes them the big 12 preseason favorites. Well, I I think it's that run. It's the Pere run going from playing three, also winning a 15K, right? It's And it's the Kajuru solidification of what we had seen in the spring. I mean, it would have been very possible that Kajuru doesn't translate that momentum of having that Cinderella story as part of Iowa State to come and have more of a mediocre fall and she didn't do that right so for her to vault herself to be the number two ranked player in the country all three of those things and and komar continuing to solidify that she's still a top player right like everyone either met expectations or exceeded expectations yeah i I think that's very fair and again it's certainly a collection of talent that you just look at it and you say, yeah, that's a top eight team. Like, I, I don't know what the biggest hole, I, I don't know what if there's any clear cut hole in this roster. I do think from a lineup perspective is the biggest question who's playing six. Like, is that legitimately where we are with this team? Because to your point, like, I feel pretty good about who five of the contributors at the very least are going to be. Honestly, I feel pretty good about who all six of the players are going to be. I feel like it's Lucia, it's Christina, it's Ayumi, it's Obi, it's Anastasia, and it's a third, and Sophia Carrington. Um, And by the way, we're going first names only because I don't want to butcher last names here on today's show. I feel pretty good about those six, Jay. I guess as you're looking between the six, Who's the MVP in the lineup? What what are the thing you know, what defines the ceiling for this team moving forward? A team that again, with the returning characters that they had, was really good at four through six last season. Just with the upgrade in talent, there should be a clear-cut boost in results at the one through three positions. You imagine that boost of talent helps translate into double success as well. 
who's the most valuable point? What's the position you look to that'll say, hey, this will help define the ceiling of this team moving forward? I'm glad you asked because it <laughs> is none of those six singles players. Okay. It is doubles. And the reason I say that is because I agree with you. I think those are the six. I think the big question, though, is, you know, I think there is going to be competition there at five and six. And Gonzalez has played there. And does she she more consistent than maybe a Novak or a Carrington? Do we have injuries? All of that. Before I get into the doubles explanation, though, in a year where we all agree it's been all chips in, it is very odd to have seven scholarship players here. It, that's why I was so surprised that Rojas is now in the portal because you're an injury away from having just six. So we'll see if we get a January edition, but I don't know. Maybe I'm less risk averse than some of these coaches. We talked about that with Pepperdine. Uh, that's the same case here with Oklahoma State where like, I don't know, like if they want to win the title this year, Let's use all eight. Like, let's get, you know, everyone in there. So that's that's my thoughts on that, on the singles piece of this. For me, it's doubles. They just weren't that good at doubles last year, and they have no reason not to be good at doubles this year. You have Miyamoto, who made the 2022 NCAA doubles semifinals. She's a fantastic doubles player. She has great hands. You have Komar, who, as you mentioned, was a two-time All-American last year in singles and in doubles. She was ranked as high as number six last season with Kylie Collins, who is probably one of the better doubles players in the country. But just with her serve, put her out there with anyone, they should be serviceable. And Kajuru, she was a big, big 12 doubles champion at the number two position off the bat those are three strong doubles players and i think this team can find three points against almost any other team and if you want to find that fourth point i think for them it needs to be doubles i think they really need to improve in doubles we didn't see many of these players compete in collegiate events right like carrington played one event uh lucia played one event miyamoto played one event so we don't really know what those doubles pairings are going to look like, but they need to be better. Yeah, and you know, again, you didn't mention Carrington there, but certainly she has the weapons. She has the size. She has the experience. experience. Has played mm-hmm. north of fifty doubles matches probably in her career at uh, various points in the lineup. And last year she was forced to play with four different partners. I say forced, to, you know, again given the circumstances at LSU and. Actually, that's a really good thing coming into her senior year, her final season on the job, that she's seen a little bit of everything, that she is adaptable. And again, whether she's thrown in at a one, a two, a three, I guess what will be fascinating is, and it's so interesting you named doubles MVP. I did the same thing in our South Carolina podcast on the men's side. And of course, Chris is like cop out. Um, But I completely agree with you here because it's an open, like, I think it's a serious question, even more so maybe than who fits where in singles, because everyone's going to fit pretty fine, regardless where you put them in the lineup. Like, do you split up Obi and Komar to start the season, or do you say, hey, we're going to play you two at number one, we feel like we're up half, half a point on everyone else, and we just got to find one more between the two, and to your point, having Ayumi and someone. Maybe it's the, the 10 years of experience of a Miyamoto Carrington pairing at two. You feel really good about that, although then again... What do you do with three there, particularly from a tennis weapon standpoint? How do you find the right pairing there where it's not just all grind, where you can get a little bit more aggressive? Because I do feel last year in doubles, 
Oklahoma State was definitely more reactive than proactive in the game style that they played. I think that's a huge I, – like, I think that's the biggest lineup question to start the year is what is that doubles lineup? I couldn't agree with you more because, man, if they go up 1-0, they've got depth to find three singles wins against anyone. Let me say that again. Depth to find three singles victories against anyone. I even think against a Stanford team, like a young Stanford team boy, like Yahweh and Shu and you, whomever it is at five and six are going to be really talented. They are not going to be as experienced as this Oklahoma State team is at the bottom of the lineup. And certainly the big dogs up top, like Komar and Obi, aren't going to look at Yepafanova and Connie Ma and be like, oh, we have to respect you. We're down to love. Like, we bend the knee and bow to you. No, no, no. They think they can beat any— Like, Komar and Obi, throw them up with any top two. You want to say Brantmeyer and Crawley again. You want to say Stoyana and whomever plays two for A&M. Again, throw me your top twos, Oklahoma State— is in the conversation for best in the country. I agree. If they're up 1-0, they're just not going to be losing a lot of matches, Jay. And, you know, again, looking at their schedule this season, it's going to be fascinating because guess what? They've got Michigan. They've got Ohio State coming to town once again. They went on the road last year, this year, right away, January 19th, January 21st, particularly, no disrespect to you, Melissa Schaub in Ohio State, but particularly that January 19th match, which I imagine will be indoors at the Greenwood Tennis Center. By the way, just throwing it out there, Coach Young, you have my cell phone number. If you'd like that match to be broadcast, that feels like a cracked racket special, my friend. Um, that's a wonderful match right off the bat. Obviously, again, this team was not top 16 to end the season. So guess what, Jay? You look at the ITA kickoff weekend, Oklahoma State, they're on the road. And I mean, what a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating ITA kickoff region. Just a few little storylines of this Fascinating, one, right? Jay. Iowa State, UCLA, Oklahoma State, Old Dominion. That sound you hear is my jaw dropping on the floor, my friend. I mean, look, they're the three seed in that group. They're the favorite as everyone heads to Ames, Iowa. And man, more broadly... Where are they going to play that kickoff weekend, like in Ames, Iowa? I'm fascinated to know the facility that will be used. I assume they'll play at the standard, right? But like, well, they no, they play their indoors at like the sports the time facility. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But I mean, again, mm, it's a tasty, tasty ITA kickoff region. Then guess what? They've got Pepperdine coming to the Greenwood Tennis Center. In between that, they've got non-conference matches against Arizona State against Princeton as well. Of course, it is worth noting with expansion in the Big 12 comes matches this year against teams like UCF, Houston, BYU. I think Cincinnati's now a part of the Big 12 as well. So a lot of new conference matches taking up competitive dates for what it's worth. But it's a spicy schedule, Jay. What's your inflection point? What are the weekends you'll be watching most closely? This was a very interesting schedule to go through. Let's talk about the big 12 once it didn't really hit me until going through the schedule big 12 women's tennis is going to be in a tough spot after texas and oklahoma leave i mean i'm looking at this oklahoma state schedule and cincinnati houston byu kansas state west virginia 
these are a lot of empty calories on this schedule now for a team like Oklahoma State. There's a lot of competitive dates that this eats up. So it didn't really hit me until I was looking at this being like, oh man, like this is not going to be in a good spot. UCF is serviceable, but not great. And the other takeaway I had from the schedule was there are not as many contenders for the NCAA title going to Stillwater as I would have expected. And I'm blaming these competitive dates that are being taken up by like Cincinnati and Houston. Like if I was Chris Young, I'd be like, let's double header these like (laughs) conference matches because I need to bring in North Carolina. I need to bring in Georgia, Stanford. Let's make a trip. Like it's great that they have Pepperdine. They clearly have a relationship with Pepperdine. They've played a lot of matches there. They have a history, but I had heard rumblings of like North Carolina, Stanford going to Stillwater this year, which always makes sense. These top teams are always looking to play at the host. That was kind of a bummer for me. Yeah. Listeners don't know this pair. Nilsson, the Pepperdine uh, women's tennis head coach, actually texts me the second to last week of November and says, who's your top 10? I'd like to schedule against the other nine. And then he always makes sure he has the dates on his calendar. You're right. Like, I mean, again, UCF has been pretty good over the years. And, you know, again, they are getting Arizona. They are getting Arizona State. And honestly, who knows if the current configurations of conference realignment are going to hold with all things going ACC. So to Jay's point, it's really too quick to make that leap. But, I mean, the key is, can Iowa State sustain? And obviously, Boomers left, and they lost a lot of pieces from last year's team. They did bring in some pretty solid recruits, though, as well. But can that program get rocking and rolling again? Can UCF and Coach Kenyako sustain their level? They've been a pretty proverbial top 25, if not flirting with top 16 team over much of the last half decade. But, yeah, it's a lot of dates. Like, you're right, Baylor is not the Baylor of old on the women's side, and they could really use a resurgent Baylor to get back in the mix. Texas Tech isn't the surefire top 16 team they had been for much of the past decade as well. So you're right. Like, again, that Oklahoma-Michigan, Oklahoma, uh, excuse me, Ohio State-Michigan kickoff weekend push, like, I'm not saying they have to go 4-0, but they – they almost have to win their kickoff weekend for sure to get to those those three additional top 16 matches. It makes it that much more important, right? Yeah. When you have some of this other bloat that you can't schedule around because of the conference. I like that it you is call it bloat. That's hilarious. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> Just calling it like I see it <laughs> yeah. at this point. This is year three of me. Uh, so my inflection point actually is that and normally I like to find an inflection point that is later on in the season because we just see how tumultuous these things can be. Look at Ohio State last year, best team of January, mid in May, right? So when it comes to these inflection points, I like to try and find things that are March, maybe even in April. Here, it's round one kickoff UCLA. This is a UCLA team that upset Duke on the road, went to Iowa State, played on those high school courts, and lost. Yeah. Now they're going back. They're going back to Ames, Iowa. They're going to face this Oklahoma State team. They're going to have uh, NCAA singles champion Fung Gruntian at the top of the lineup. And we don't know really who else right now. But <laughs> look, it's not going to be an easy match. And if they don't win that match, it's going to be almost impossible to be a top eight seed. Yeah. They have to make it to kickoff weekend. Or they have to make it to indoors. And so that's why, for me, this season hinges on that match. 
Really well said. Really, really, really well said. I have nothing to add from a schedule perspective. Let's just get into, the, again, the meat and potato of the conversation. Ceiling floor for this 2024 Oklahoma State team. Again, it is worth noting here at the top or here at the bottom, wherever we are in this podcast, the ending note. They're hosting the NCAAs. Like this is a final. The final eight is and the Big Twelve championship. Well, that's the pre. That's the that's the warm up act. That's That's to make sure the facility manager and everyone knows what we're getting ready for over the next few weeks. And I do want to say, I know there have been plenty of compliments here for Chris Young, knowing the things I know about what he's doing to prepare for the NCAA tournament. He is not skipping a single f***ing step. And I just want to give a lot of credit to Chris Young. I want to give a lot of credit to the Greenwood family, this Oklahoma State program. And honestly, it's a two-parter because they're working with Baylor to try to make this a cohesive, coherent 18-month NCAA run where it's like, hey, we know the pressure that's on us, especially with the move to the fall. Like, how can we coordinate to make it one cohesive effort to make it, you know, to benefit college tennis broadly as a whole? I got to give a lot of credit to them. And again, I know what Chris Young is trying to accomplish, the things he wants this NCAA tournament to represent this year. And I got to give him a lot of credit. Obviously, would make life for him significantly easier if all of those efforts are being done while his team is still competing and alive in the NCAA tournament in Stillwater. Not saying he would tank if they were to lose in the round of 16. I'm, well, some schools have. Oh, t- they you know should, yeah, let's not stop it, stop it, stop it. Their responsibilities. <laughs> I know who you're talking about. I like, we're not doing this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, do it. I'm just saying it's absolutely an option. Like people yeah. don't realize that so much of yeah, the no, experience right. of the final site is on the host. Yeah. Like they have to pay for that stuff. They have to put all that stuff up. Absolutely. And for if your school is not there, like you could shirk the responsibility. Yeah, I, I missed you. It's been a long twelve years since we podcasted. It's good to have you back. Um, very well said. And the point is, again, is the floor for this team? Like, do you think this is a top eight lock if healthy? I guess that's my question. Where I want to start? Are they the prohibitive? Well. I don't know if I can call them the prohibitive Big 12 favorites with the rosters we have at Texas, at Oklahoma. And spoiler alert, we're not going to have Oklahoma in our top four moving forward, so we're not going to do a preview episode about them. But I certainly think they have enough talent to be competing for a top eight seed, enough talent to certainly give Oklahoma State a run. And again, looking at the schedule between these two this year, it is worth noting not only is the Big 12 championship at home, uh, excuse me, you have the Big 12 Championship home, you have the NCAA Final Slate Tournament at home. They're at Norman on March 24th. They're in Austin on March 22nd. Those two feel particularly pertinent, Jay. It's really tough to go on the road and beat those two teams. It's even more difficult to go to Texas and beat them twice in a row in Austin. Ceiling floor, give me your thoughts on the Cowgirls before we wrap today's show. Yeah, well, having to go to Norman and to Austin was the one thing Chris Young couldn't have this season. He gets the Big 12, he gets the NCAAs, but those ones, they they mess with the schedule just to say you can't have it all. You know, look, this has been a pretty complimentary podcast. Bringing in these transfers who are going to play at the top of the lineup, it is a very diverse group of players. 
And it's not going to be easy to manage all of these players and build a cohesive unit. Many of these players have never played together. They don't have experience. Many of them were off doing their own thing this semester, playing very few college matches. They have very few reps playing doubles together. That is not an easy thing to do. On paper, this is the first team where I believe the ceiling is winning a national championship. But I also think that the floor, it could be low. And that that's just a, a paper thing because, look, these are players that we haven't seen do it. We haven't seen Oklahoma State do it in, in, a, in a long time, 2016 making the final. So it's hard to – it's really hard to see this team not making the final site because I, I firmly believe that they will be – uh, a top 16 seed but as we mentioned it the schedule doesn't allow for a lot of grace right it, if they have a trip up in that ucla match well now they're on the outside looking in at indoors is texas and oklahoma going to be top eight teams this year or are they going to be nine through 16 and if so where are the top wins going to come for oklahoma state so there are definitely off ramps to the like title chances here but I was there in 2016. I saw the crowd, the momentum. I have a very hard time seeing this team not be taken over uh, by, by by the crowd and making a really, really formidable run this year. If this team gets to the Final Eight, look out. Because, again, all you got to do is point to Gainesville 2021. Like, that Florida team had a home crowd in Orlando. Uh, yeah, but uh, thank you, Orlando. But they brought Gainesville to Orlando. And so, again, like, what a difference that made, particularly in the NCAA final, where after losing the doubles point, like, a shout out to McLean Kessler, who deserves half a point in that Florida victory, who just, you could hear his voice everywhere, and him and all these alums just spread out. They made that a home match. And again, with everything else equal from a talent perspective, those are the little details that ultimately make the difference. Do I think this team's ceiling is straight up win a national championship? I think you have to say yes because I don't know what the holes are to attack them in a match-by-match basis. Like, sure, you give Crawley a benefit of the doubt. You give Brantmeyer a benefit of the doubt. You give the depth of North Carolina the benefit of the doubt just because we've seen them do it all before. But on an individual basis, if I was like Miyamoto versus Scotty on any given day, toss-up. Like, Komar versus Crawley. On any given day, I'd lean fee, but I still I'm not writing off Anastasia Komar. Man, Obi versus Brantmeyer, the contrast of styles. I would just like to sign up for that match right now. Let the record show. Um, and maybe I'm screwing up lineup perspective of who's going to play where. Maybe Brantmeyer ends up at one, Crawley ends up two. Either way, like they could just match up with everyone if healthy. They have that sort of depth. They have that sort of talent, and again, they're not relying on a superstar freshman. They're relying all on players we've seen play at least 20 dual matches throughout the course of their careers. I think that's the ceiling. I would love if they had one more player, for sure. I love eight. You always like eight better than you like seven, and that additional option it provides, and again, that's probably the difference as you move forward to teams ranked four, three, two, one in our rankings is like... I think Rabman plays for this lineup. I don't think Rabman's going to be playing 
for North Carolina, um, the talented freshman, for those of you unfamiliar with that last name. And we're going to find, yeah, again, um, man, yeah, Ceilings National Championship. I feel fine saying that. I really do. And again, if this team's not a top 16 seed, something went horribly wrong. So I would put that as the lowest possible floor. But, like, I really do expect this team to be a top eight seed. And truth be told, I would be shocked if they didn't walk away with at least one Big 12 championship. Now, because they're on the road in Norman, in Austin, I'm not going to guarantee that's the regular season title. But, boy, can't you see the narrative, Jay? They win the Big 12 championship at home. They beat Oklahoma. They beat Texas, securing themselves a top eight seed. And now everything opens up for them for an NCAA tournament run. That runway is right there for the Cowgirls to land. Final thoughts on all things Oklahoma State belong to you. Yeah, look, I'm looking forward to this season. You talked about the facility. I personally have not been there. I know you have had the privilege Gorgeous. of being there. Gorgeous. I'm excited to be there. I'm excited to explore Stillwater. Uh, so Less I'm looking gorgeous. forward to it. <laughs> well, not according to Haley Carter, a former UNC player, now assistant coach who coached at Oklahoma State. Big fan of Stillwater. Lie. Uh, actually. <laughs> no, I don't, I'm I don't just think kidding. so. I'm just kidding, by the way. I'm kidding. Yeah. Carry on. So no, I, I'm excited for it. it. It's our final year of having both the team and the individuals events we'll be spending lots of time in Stillwater so I can give a final verdict after that (laughs) but this has been I will the 2016 run again I'm I'm super biased it was a storybook run that I would feel very fortunate to have seen it was one of when I think back of NCAAs it was one of the ones I distinctly remember and there is that possibility that this team has a similar arc and I'm looking forward to it. It's a lot of pressure. That's the other thing to talk about is that these players coming in as transfers, they have huge burden and expectations onto them. So how they deal with that will be something to monitor, but it's going to be a very interesting season. And I feel like we'll be talking about Oklahoma state every week on the podcast. Well, I mean, wouldn't have it any other way, right? That's half the fun, and certainly that's something we look forward to exploring throughout the course of the season. And I would just like to clean that up because I feel myself already getting yelled at. This is why I don't offer takes anymore, because when I offer a take, I feel myself getting yelled at for the take. You walk onto Oklahoma State's athletic campus, and you're wondering why every athlete in the world doesn't choose to attend this school, because, oh my God, are their facilities gorgeous, like legitimately gorgeous. And the Greenwood Tennis Center is new. And by the way, they were supposed to host NCAAs in 2020. Obviously, we're going back there this year because it got canceled due to COVID. You just love to see that that makeup opportunity was extended because, again, Chris Young is going to be putting in the resources. Chris Young is going to be putting in the time, the efforts to make this a special NCAA championship. You hope for his sake that his team will be one of those final eight competing at that final site. Well, not Chris Young's sake, just the community's sake, I yeah, would say. Exactly. Like, sure. what an awesome opportunity. I don't know how many. One, they've never won a women's NCAA title. So to be in the hunt for this would be super special. Two, I don't know how many NCAAs that they host in general. It's not an opportunity that every school has. So I have to imagine Stillwater will rally behind this. Be all the more special to have them in the hunt. Yeah, absolutely. So again, our preseason number five team heading into 2024. And I think this is the highest we've ever had Oklahoma State since we started this Crack Rackets poll, the Oklahoma State Cowgirls, who again, we look forward to watching compete throughout the course of the 2024 season. With that said, that'll do it for today's episode. Now, the best part, 
we got four more teams to go as we prepare for the start of the 2024 season. And again, if you listen to our earlier GSPs this week, you know Jay and I will be back tomorrow. We decided to switch up the schedule a bit this week to accommodate our dear friend John J. Parsons, who I'm immensely happy that he uh, – I am ex- – extraordinarily happy, excuse me, I don't like immensely happy, that sounds weird, extraordinarily happy that you are back up to health, that you were able to join me on today's podcast. Any final thoughts before we wrap this show? No, this was a fun one. This was a fun one indeed. I told this to Chris as well. How do you know we're in the top five? Because we're over the hour mark and we're starting (laughs) to rock and roll. We got some debates to have and it's only going to get better from here. But a thank you to Jay as always. A thank you as well to our dear super producer Daniel Westoff for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A thank you to him. With all of that said, though, for our fantastic guest and co-host John J. Parsons, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I am your host, Alex Gruskin. Jay, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.